and it might be my, oh, I don't know if it's my fault or not, but it probably was. Are we good? All right. I'm not going to start over. We're going to pick up where I left off. I know it's only three sentences, but still. I hope that you've experienced these encounters with Jesus as you've been reading through the Gospels. I have challenged each of you to read through one of the Gospels as we go through the month of January. And um, I challenge you this for a few reasons. One, um, it's, it's good that we all practice the discipline of reading God's Word regularly. We all need to do better at that. Um, two, I want each of you to know more and more about Jesus and who he is and what it was like when he lived here on this earth. And three, I believe it's good for our faith to have a fresh encounter with Jesus, even though we may have had one before. We all could use a little more Jesus in our life. And so I hope you've experienced this through the month of January. Now, if you haven't taken this challenge, um, there's still time. Today is January 27th. I know, the month is flying by. It's hard to believe that we're almost done with January 2019 already. But there's still time. I'm going to give you a little little help here. If you choose the book of Mark, it's the shortest gospel, okay? There's 16 chapters. And so if you decide to do four chapters a day, you'll have one day left over, January 31st. So you can do it. It still can be done. Now, four chapters will take you approximately 15 to 20 minutes a day reading. I think we all could handle that. So I believe in you. You can do it. Um, Pick up the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Now, you can read the other ones too if you want, but Mark will be the easiest, all right? Um, This is our fourth and final week of looking at some of these encounters that people had with Jesus. We looked at Nathaniel, one of the disciples of of Jesus. We looked at the demon-possessed man who was possessed by thousands of demons. And last week, we looked at the encounter between Jesus and the devil. Well, this week, we go to the last moments of Jesus' life where we meet a criminal hanging on a cross, being executed next to Jesus. Um, This encounter is found in Luke chapter 23. So those of you who are paying attention, if you've been here all four weeks, you will notice that we had an encounter from each of the four Gospels. That's where where I've I've been. Now, it's clever, I know. I, I actually didn't do that on purpose, but when I was studying this week, I'm like, hey, I amused myself um, with these things. I know. More than I amuse you, I, I know. Well, this day, when Jesus was crucified, two criminals were being executed right along with him. And we don't know much about these guys. We don't know their names. We don't know their criminal activity. Um, some suggest that they were thieves, um, which that is suggested in the title of the sermon to the thief on the cross, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is whatever their crime, it was probably not their first offense. They were repeat offenders, and it was worthy enough to be put to death. And so these are some pretty bad guys. Death by crucifixion was not a pleasant experience. It was gruesome. It was violent. It was excruciating. It was inhumane, really. 
so inhumane, so much that Roman citizens wouldn't be used, wouldn't be put to death this way. If there was a Roman citizen that needed to be executed, they would pick a much more humane way, like beheading them. <laughs> that sounds humane, doesn't it? Um, but but crucifixion was so much worse, and it was it was inhumane. None of the gospel writers go into much detail about what actually took place during a crucifixion. They don't um, describe what Jesus experienced on the cross, what actually happened during that time. We do learn, though, from other sources, historical sources, of what a crucifixion was like. And it was bad. So bad. Bad enough that I'm not going to spend that much detail describing it. Jesus and these two guys were going through the same experience that day. Each of them would have been laid out on a post and their arms stretched wide and nails driven into their hands or wrists. And then their feet would have been pulled down and their feet nailed to that same post. And then the Roman guards would hoist those crosses up and stand them vertical for everyone to see. Jesus hung there in the middle, and each criminal hung on either side, his right and left. And people would come to watch these gruesome executions. People would would come to see them. And there were crowds this day too. The Pharisees would have been there wanting to see Jesus breathe his last breath because they've been waiting for two years or more for him to die. They wanted to kill him for that long, and it's finally happening. There were women in the crowd that day, women who were followers of Jesus, who were following along mourning and grieving because their friend and their Lord was being put to death. There were Roman guards there to oversee the execution. There were These were the guys who were actually performing the execution, driving those nails and hoisting the crosses up. And then there would have been people just there to enjoy it, which is crazy for us to imagine, but it was kind of like their entertainment. I mean, this was a sick people that would come and do that. And then just passerbys that were trying to get to the city that day. This was not unusual. Crucifixions took place regularly. And it's amazing that during this crucifixion, while they're hanging there, Jesus was able to speak he actually, he actually spoke seven different phrases while he hung there on the cross. And we'll see him speak a couple times in our text today. But it's amazing that he's able to say anything at all because he's so weak, he's so beaten down. You know, you heard the phrase, they're half dead. Well, he's more than half dead. He's, he's right on the cusp. Just moments away from breathing his last breath. And he says things like, forgive them, Father for they don't know what they're doing. He's looking at the Jewish leaders who have have brought him to this point. He's looking at the Roman guards who actually drove the nails. He's looking at these bystanders, these grieving women and these people just coming to watch. And he asked for forgiveness for them. And it's not that he forgave them right there on the spot. I mean, we do see in the Gospels that Jesus is able and he does forgive sins. But no, he's asking for mercy on them in hopes that one day they will realize what they did and they will turn to God and there find forgiveness. 
The whole point of him suffering and dying was so all the world could experience this forgiveness. And so this is the scene of our encounter today. Um, The last hours of Jesus's life would be life-changing for one of those criminals hanging on the cross with him. And wouldn't you rather meet Jesus somewhere else? (laughs) I mean, wouldn't you have rather meet him at the wedding banquet where he turned water into wine? Or maybe on the mountainside where he's feeding 5,000 people with just a couple fish and loaves. Wouldn't you rather meet him there? I mean, we can think of all kinds of places we would rather meet Jesus. Maybe for you, it was a revival or a church camp. Maybe it's a worship service, much like we're sitting in here today. Wouldn't you rather meet Jesus there? I mean, we could find, we could think of all other kinds of places we would rather meet Jesus rather than hanging on a cross being executed next to him. The truth is, though, for this man, it wasn't too late. And he had an encounter with Jesus at just the right time. And so let's read the text this morning and see this encounter play out between a criminal and Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verses 20, uh, 32 through 43. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too. By offering him a drink of sour wine, they called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing encounter this is. In the, in the last moments of these guys' lives that are able to have this kind of connection. Now, when I read this encounter it raises a couple questions to me. A couple questions are raised here. And the first question is this. Did this criminal really receive forgiveness in the last moments of his life? It appears he did. And this can be bothersome to some of us. How can this man who lived a life of crime receive the same salvation as the martyr? Say, for instance, Stephen, who was stoned to death for preaching and believing in the resurrection. How can this man receive the same salvation as the apostles? Or how can this man receive, this criminal, this this man who lived a life of crime, receive the same salvation as the one who lived in obedience and in faith? Well, It's true, people 
come to Jesus in different moments of their life. For you, it may be early on, maybe nine or ten years old. For someone else, it may be late in life. Let me illustrate this by telling a story. There's a farmer who needed help on his farm, and so he goes to town to the hardware store where it's common for people to hang out looking for work. And so he decides to hire some of these people, and he, um, they agree on a, on a wage. They agree that they would get paid a day's wage to go and work for this farmer. And so he takes them back to his farm, and he puts them to work. Well, a few hours later, he needs to go back to that hardware store. And so he goes back to town, and there are still some people waiting to work. And so he decides to hire them and bring them back to the farm, and so he does. Well, a farmer typically needs to run back to the hardware store, and so he goes back to the store, and there's more people there looking for work, and he decides to hire them as well. And this goes on all day, even up until the last moment of the day. There's only an hour left of work to be done, and the farmer goes back to the hardware store, and he hires a few more to work the rest of the day. Now, if you are a farmer, you know that there are days that requires multiple trips to the hardware store. <laughs> For me, I don't live on a farm, but if I'm doing a project at home, it's going to take multiple trips to the hardware store, either to buy more stuff or to replace the part that I broke as I was trying to fix it. Uh, you know what it's like. This farmer makes multiple trips to the hardware store and he sees all these people needing help and he brings them to work on his farm. Now, at the end of the day, he decides to gather them up and to pay them. And he starts with that last group, the group that only worked for about an hour. And, and he's like, okay, it's time to get paid. And he hands them a day's wage. Now, they would have been, their minds would have been blown. We only worked an hour, but we're getting paid for the whole day. I mean, they're, they're feeling really good. And the other people who had worked all day are thinking, wow, we're going to get paid big time because we worked more than an hour. We worked all day. Well, the next group comes up, and the farmer pays them, and he pays them a day's wage. And they're starting to get confused. This group is like, well, it's, it's the same that the people worked an hour, but I only worked a half a day, and this is way more than what I deserve, so they're happy and content. Well... Imagine the last group who worked eight hours. They come up before the farmer, and the farmer pays them. You know what he pays them? A day's wage. And they're disgusted. How can this be? This is not fair. We worked eight hours, and, and the people who worked only four hours or maybe even an hour, they get the same pay as we. The farmer tells them, look, I paid you what we agreed we agreed that you would work for a day's wage. And I'm a generous man, and I wanted to pay these other workers the same. I wanted to be kind and help them out. You see, everyone, no matter when they arrived to work, they received the same pay. Now, this story may sound a little familiar. Jesus actually tells this story in Matthew chapter 20. But he starts out the story like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. You see this picture of a farmer hiring these workers. It's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. 
It's a picture of, of what those who are welcomed into the kingdom looks like. Some are faithful and obedient all their lives, and some come in at the last moment, but they all receive the same thing. Now, just a side note here, I don't think um, God was running back and forth to the hardware store because he broke something or he forgot something or didn't plan well. I think he went back to get more workers. He went back to hire more workers because he wants to invite as many people into his farm, into his kingdom as possible. He's going to keep on inviting people to come and be a part of it. He welcomes everyone. So what's this mean to us? Well, first, it answers our question. Yes, this man did receive forgiveness in the last moments of his life. But it also causes us to think about how we react when this happens. Because this does happen. Some of you may know people who lived a horrible life and turned to God in the last moments. And you just can't believe it. Maybe you, don't, maybe you think they don't deserve it. But here's the thing. None of us should be asking God to be fair. Think about that. We don't want God to be fair with us. That's dangerous. We don't want God to operate according to fairness. We surely don't want him to treat us as we deserve. No, we we should be all about grace. Not only for us, but for others. This is what salvation looks like. It's based on grace, not fairness. The forgiveness we receive is not based on what we deserve. We don't want a God like that. We want a generous God. This, our, our forgiveness is based on his generosity, his love. And it seems like he's just handing it out carelessly, but no, he wants anyone and everyone to receive it. You see, God's generosity is far better than fairness. Now this means that people have up until the last moment to turn to Jesus. It doesn't mean they should. (laughs) Maybe you've heard people say from time to time, well, I'm going to live my life the way I want to and I'll turn to God later. Maybe you've said those words before. It's foolish. How do you think you have any control over that? How do you think you can orchestrate that? How can you think that you can make that play out? It won't work. There's so many ways this won't work. So that's the first question. The criminal on the cross receives forgiveness in the last moments of his life. Now this is a picture of God's goodness and his generosity, not an example of how we should live our life. The second question is this, what happens when we die? That's a tough question. Um, We think about that. Um, Some people are afraid of death because they're afraid of what happens when we die. Well, this is a difficult question to answer, and, and I really don't have time to address everything that goes into this. I mean, this could be a sermon in itself, or it could actually be a series, and we start talking about heaven and hell and The end times kind of play into this a little bit. And so, I mean, there's a lot going on here. But I am hopeful that we will answer this enough to be satisfied. Now, I must tell you, I haven't died and come back to tell you what happens after we die. 
As crazy as that sounds, there are people who claim that. There are many books published that talk about what happens when someone dies. Um, They became popular because of our fascination with this. We want some sort of confirmation of what it will be like. Books like 90 Minutes in Heaven or um, one is called 23 Minutes in Hell. Um, Heaven is for real. The boy who died and went to heaven. Um, there's, There's many more. But these became popular and they sold many copies. Actually, the book, The Boy Who Died and Went to Heaven, actually you can't find that anymore because the publisher pulled it from the shelves because the boy... Um, admitted just a year or two ago that he made it all up. Maybe some of you have read these books. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of them out there. Heaven is for Real sold 10 million copies. And so I'm not going to answer this question based on any of these books. I, I haven't read them. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not interested in them. Um, I don't think they um, mean a whole lot. They don't mean a whole lot to me. They don't paint a true picture of what heaven is like. What I am interested in is what the Bible teaches about this. And the Bible does address this. Um, The Bible doesn't give much detail about heaven. We do have some descriptions of what it is like. Um, We do get some parables um, describing what the kingdom is like and what um, end times is like. We see a few biblical authors describe a vision of heaven. Um, This doesn't happen very often in the Bible. Actually, you can count them on one hand. Uh, We see these descriptions of heaven, but we don't see many of them. And all these descriptions are visions from God, prophetic visions that God gave these prophets. They were not near-death experiences. All of these visions focus on one common thing, the glory of God. And Jesus tells this criminal, hanging on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now paradise sounds like a nice place, doesn't it? We all kind of have an image of paradise in our mind when we hear that word. We want to be there, especially if Jesus is there. Those who belong to Jesus, those who are part of his kingdom will be with Jesus in paradise when they die. And it seems to be immediately. That's the context of our text today. This thought is confirmed in a couple other places in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talks about the dilemma he's having with being alive and serving God versus being dead and being with him. In Philippians 1, 21 through 24 says, For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. You see, Paul equates dying with being with Jesus. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Yes, we are fully confident. And we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. To die and be separated from this earthly body means to be with the Lord. I told you we would answer this question enough to be satisfied. So here it goes. For those who belong to Jesus, 
when you die, you will be with Jesus. And that should be enough. For me to be with Jesus is enough. I don't need to know what heaven is like. I don't need to know what it looks like, what it smells like. I don't need to know what I'll be doing when I'm there. I don't need to know if I'll have a halo and angel wings. I don't need to know all those questions that I can't get answered here on earth. I'm not going to be running to God and asking them. I probably won't even think of them when I'm there because I will be with Jesus and that is enough. If you belong to Jesus, when you die, you will be with him. Now, there's a flip side. If you do not belong to Jesus, when you die, you will not be with him. That's not good. There's no biblical evidence that you will ever be with him. In fact, the biblical evidence that we have for people like this is that you will, is, is torment is torture, separation from God and from Jesus where no one can come and go. This is the story of the other criminal hanging on the cross. And that leads us to our takeaway this morning. These two criminals reflect two responses to the cross. One is concerned about himself the other's concerned about God and God's kingdom. One looks at Jesus as powerless, as a fraud. The other look, looks at him as a king coming into his kingdom. These two re- responses represent a choice the whole world is faced with when it comes to the cross. And so I ask you, what do you see when you look at the cross? Do you see just a story, a fairy tale, something that's made up, a fraud? Or do you see a Lord who loves the world so much he's willing to suffer and die and hopes that one day you would turn to him? You see, we all have this choice. The man hanging there that day was a criminal, a lifelong criminal. And it's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't bring that up. Jesus doesn't bring that up. He doesn't hold it against him because he sees the man's heart and he knows his faith. And so when we, when we think about our life, we think about the things that we have done, there's comfort in knowing that God is not going to hold that against us. You see, the things that we have done in life is not what keeps us from God. Now, sin does separate you from God, but the cross bridges that gap. And so what keeps you from God today is not what you have done. It's what you do with the cross. When you look at the cross, what do you see? It's our inability to accept Jesus and what he's done for us that hinders us. And you may be thinking, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the kind of life I've lived. It doesn't matter. God won't hold that against you. And yeah, there might be some circumstances, some um, consequences that you have to deal with here on earth. But in God's eyes, you are welcomed into the kingdom. You are forgiven. Just like this criminal. And so we have a choice. What do you see when you look at the cross? Do you see a fraud? Do you see make-believe? 
Or do you see a loving king dying for you so you can be welcomed into the kingdom? And one day, you will be with Jesus for eternity. It's our choice. We have to respond. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die on our behalf. And we thank you for your word and for stories like this where we see how much you love and and how you accept us just as we are. Father, I'm amazed at how this encounter plays out and how Jesus welcomes this criminal into the kingdom right then and there. It shows us that we too can be welcomed into your kingdom if we repent and turn to you. Father, I pray for anyone here today who's faced with this choice of how to respond to the cross. Help those who may be struggling through this right now, Lord. I pray for those who who made this choice already. I pray you just reaffirm them, encourage them, build their faith right now, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.